Hi, welcome to the Two Journeys podcast. This is episode 25 in the book of Hebrews titled, The Finality of Christ's Sacrifice, where we discuss Hebrews chapter 10, verses 11 through 18. I'm your host, Joel Harford, and I'm here with Pastor Andy Davis. Andy, the author is laboring to show his audience the superiority of Christ's sacrifice. Specifically, we've been talking in the last several podcasts about the finality of Christ's sacrifice, the once-for-all nature. What does he add here in this section to really bolster his argument? Well, I think it's just so very powerful that he gives us, a, I think, a vision of the of the the two stages in this life of salvation. You've got justification and sanctification, and depending on on how you understand verse fourteen, it seems like he he lays them out in in Hebrews ten fourteen by one sacrifice, and that's what he's really laboring here: the once for all sacrifice. By one sacrifice, he has made positionally perfect for all eternity those who are progressively being made holy, those who are in the process of being holy. And I think that's a very powerful help for us here in this section. Yeah. Well, for the sake of our audience, I'm going to read Hebrews chapter 10, verses 11 through 18. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us. For after saying, This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws on their minds and write them on their hearts. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. So my first question to you, Andy, is how does this section connect with the verses we just read? Because he says, and every priest stands daily at his service. So just connect these two for us. Yeah, he's uh, giving us in verses 1 through 10, Christ's sacrifice once for all. The fact that the endless repetition of the animal sacrifices proves their inferiority, uh, proves their symbolic nature, proves the fact that they are a type and a shadow, not the actual uh, sacrifice of atonement for sins. They pointed ahead to a Savior who would come later. And so throughout the entire Old Covenant sacrificial era, every time an animal was sacrificed and its blood poured out on the altar by a Levitical priest, it was a picture of Christ. But it was ineffective because endlessly these sacrifices, year after year, day after day, were repeated. And so the author has been making that point. But he says, by contrast, Christ came into the world once for all, Quoting Psalm 40, verse 6 through 8, he says, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you have prepared for me. And by that, he's referring to the incarnation. And Jesus was made incarnate by the Holy Spirit in the womb of the Virgin Mary for many purposes, but especially that his blood would be shed on the cross as the final once-for-all sacrifice for sins. The animal sacrificial system uh, was thereby instantly made obsolete. How can you know that? How do I know that that's true? For us as Gentiles, it's not a big deal. But for the Jews, that was the center of their religious life. It was to go year after year to the temple to know that animal sacrifice was being offered. The Passover, uh, the sacrifice was a bloody sacrifice. It would be offered. And to be told that that's obsolete, uh, they would need some proof. And the author is pointing out in, by various means here 
the proof of the superiority, the once for all superiority of Christ. Amen. Well, in verse 11, he says that every priest stands daily at a service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. Now, there's, there's a lot to un unpack here, and we've talked about it before, but I want you to zero in on this standing. I know we mentioned this uh, several podcasts ago about the high priest standing all the time, always working. The author of Hebrews continues to talk about this. Can you explain why this is so important? Four different times in the book of Hebrews, the author mentions that Christ is seated at the right hand of the majesty in heaven or on high. Now, he's quoting Psalm 110, verse 1, which says, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Definitely, the author has that passage in mind here in these verses. Right. He quotes it in verse 13. Yeah, and we'll yeah. get to that. But, but the idea of standing versus seated, again, just is a symbolic representation of a finished work. You know, the idea is that you sit down when your work is done. But the priest, his work is never done. He's there day after day. When he gets done with his day's work and goes home to his wife and his kids and, and uh, gets up the next day, he's got to do it all over again. It's, it never ends because it was just symbolic. But it, requ it was required. He couldn't end it. He didn't have the authority to say, hey, we're not doing this anymore. But God had that power, and he did in Jesus, saying, hey, we're not doing this anymore, by tearing the curtain in, in two from top to bottom, saying that there's access now into the, into the very presence of God, and then under the Romans, finally destroying the temple. Uh, he put an end to it, put an end to animal sacrifice. But Jesus really put an end to it by saying, it is finished. And so when he died, we have the sense that he has passed through the heavenly realms and went up into the heavenly realms, uh, into the highest, even above the heavenly realms, and sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven, sat down at the right hand of God. Sit at my right hand, said the Father. And in being seated, it's a symbol of his work being finished once for all, whereas the priests are endlessly standing. Yeah. What's the significance in verse 12 of him seated at the right hand of God? Mm -hmm. that, it's a position of favor, a, a position of honor. There is no more trusted advisor. Think of it that way. There's no, no one closer to the king. It's a, it's a seat of honor to sit at the right hand of a king. And so Almighty God, whom Jesus calls in Matthew eleven twenty seven, Lord of heaven and earth, that's Almighty God. This Almighty God, this Lord of heaven and earth, says to his only begotten Son, with whom he is well pleased, sit at my right hand. It's a place of honor, and we would also think, based on Hebrews 7.25, a place of intercession, a place of access by which he can intercede for the saints in accordance with the will of God. So he's, a, he's right there at the right hand of God. He is his right-hand man, so to speak, and he has access to the Father. He has the Father's ear, and he intercedes. Right. So you mentioned the intercession, and we talked about that in the priestly ministry of Jesus. But he's also waiting. So what is he waiting for? Yeah, well, again, quoting Psalm 110, he says in verse 13, Since that time he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool. Um, and so the idea here is of a transformation or a conquest to some degree of the enemy forces that are arrayed against him. And so it's, it's interesting because it's very plain in Romans chapter 5. At one time, we were enemies. And Titus says the same thing. We're hostile to him. We were his enemies. Now, the image of footstool is, does not really point in some ways to conversion. But if you continue the verse, in verse 14, it says, By one sacrifice he has made perfect forever those who are sanctified or those who are 
being made holy, it's, it's hard to know what footstool means here. We know this for certain. Those that will not follow him, those that will not have him to be their king, God Almighty will destroy them. And you get this in Psalm 2 where he warns the kings of the earth who take counsel and the rulers gather together against the Lord. They are Christ's enemies. He says, let me warn you. I have established my son on Zion, my holy hill, and I will not brook any rivals or any opposition. I will crush anyone who is opposed to him. And so we could see the enemies being entrenched forces, demonic certainly, but here it seems to be talking about people, human beings who will not submit to Christ's kingly yoke. Jesus, uh, sorry, God the Father says to Jesus, sit at my right hand and I will crush your enemies. Let me say a word about the footstool. The footstool is a sense of total domination. So I think it was Joshua who had all the kings of the land who he was about to kill lay down and put his, he said, come all you leaders of, of Israel, tribal leaders, put your f- feet on the necks of your enemies. This is what God is going to do to all those who oppose you. Or again, it says beautifully in Romans sixteen twenty, I think the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. So there is that sense of total conquest. So there's, when, when the father's done subduing Jesus' enemies, there'll be no opposition to his rule in the universe. Yeah. yeah, this is a consistent theme of the New Testament. Paul also mm-hmm. makes much of this in 1 Corinthians 15, yeah. where he talks about all things being subjected under the Son. Yeah, and, and also I, I like the idea of the Father being zealous on behalf of the Son. The mm-hmm. Son is, without a doubt, Jesus is the, is the most hated and the most maligned and blasphemed person in human history. No one has had more people speak words against them uh, him than Jesus. Um, you know, kings come and go, emperors come and go, and then people forget them and they don't blaspheme them. But in every generation, people arise and speak badly of Jesus. They blaspheme him or mock him. And that's why Jesus shows an amazing graciousness when he says, all manner of sin and blasphemy spoken against the Son of Man will be forgiven. He's a very gracious Savior. Jesus is also by far the most beloved human being that's ever lived. Both of those are true. But you have these enemies that are arraigned and uh, Jesus gives himself fully to the Father, does everything the Father wants him to do and says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Peter says that Jesus entrusted himself to him who judges justly concerning his enemies. And if they will not follow him, the Father is zealous for the glory of his Son to conquer his enemies. So the, the psalmist in Psalm 2 says, Let me give you some advice, O rulers of the earth. Be wise. Don't fight me on this one. I love my son. I exalt him. And if you will not kiss the son, as the psalmist says, if you'll not submit to him and love him, then I will crush you. So there is that terrifying opposition from Almighty God. As you're talking about this, I'm thinking about something that I have never thought before in this text. And that is, I think maybe in here there's there's a subtle warning because they're in danger of drifting away from Christ. But he's telling them Psalm 110 and saying, hey, one day all of his enemies are going to be under his feet. And then later he warns them uh, at, at the end of this chapter, there's another warning. Oh, so yeah. do you think there's a warning here in 13 as well? Well, yeah, you have the same image in verse 29. Uh, it says, how much more severely do you think a man deserves to be punished who has trampled the son of God underfoot? So they're doing the reverse thing. They're, they're trampling Jesus underfoot. It's like, you, you do that, you're going to get trampled. So yeah, I think there's definitely a warning here. Don't be an enemy of Christ. 
Let's talk a little bit more about this waiting. It says he's waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. So he's been waiting for 2,000 years. Give us some insight into this waiting. It's a mystery. It really is. God is a timeless being, but he is pictured as waiting. It's almost like he's subordinate to his own timetable, subordinate to his own schedule. And he's not. He made the timetable. He made the schedule. But you know how it says in Galatians 4, in the fullness of time, when the time was right, Jesus was born. So he was waiting all that time for the incarnation. Um, he also waits for rebels and sinners to repent and come to Christ. He was Praise waiting. God. For, yeah, amen. Yeah. He was waiting for Saul of Tarsus. Uh, you get the picture of Jesus, uh, sorry, God the Father, standing and waiting for Israel, where he says in Romans, All day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and obstinate people. The father of the prodigal son seems to be pictured as waiting day after day after day. And it's a kind of an odd image for a sovereign king who does what he wants with his universe, being somewhat waiting passively for something to happen. But we shouldn't think of it as waiting passively. There's just a time orientation, and we are part of it, an alpha and omega sequencing, that things can't happen before other things happen. And so he is waiting for the right time for his enemies to be made his footstool, or waiting for the right time for some of his enemies, thank God, to be converted. And so it's a beautiful uh, picture. So I like that, that idea of him waiting at the right hand of God. Yeah, that reminds me of the end of Hebrews chapter 11, where uh, he talks about how those who've gone before us haven't received their uh, their promise because God had provided something better for us that apart from us, mm. they should not be made perfect. So yeah. there's this, this waiting for all the redeemed to be brought into the family, and then yeah. he'll consummate the age, crush his enemies. Yeah, and what it shows me is what an important thing patience is in the Christian life. We go through afflictions, and we have to be under them for a time. And we have to wait. We have to be patient. And we think maybe as you and I are both parents and we wait for our kids to come around to a living faith. Uh, all of my kids have come to a saving faith in Christ. They're older than yours. But you're going to be waiting and waiting for the right time for them to cross over from death to life. And when you have a sense of that and that, you know, there's a lot of waiting. And so we wait in suffering. We wait for other people to be converted. And, and it's, it's an interesting picture here of God waiting too. James talks about how the farmer is patient and waits for the autumn and spring rains. It seems that God is patient waiting too. Yeah. Let's talk about verse 14. He says, For a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Now, we talked extensively last podcast about the, the finality of Christ's sacrifice, the single offering. So I want to ask about verse 14. What is this perfection? He has perfected for all time. And then the phrase, those who are being sanctified. Because I think you mentioned in the opening comments the justification and sanctification aspect of our salvation. Can you go into that a little more? Sure. The word perfection is vital for us understanding our salvation. We must be perfect to go to heaven. Absolutely perfect. There must be no flaw, no defect, no, not a single virus of sin or bacteria, bacterium of sin in us. Uh, that's the nature of sin. Sin metastasizes, it spreads. God can take none of it into heaven. He is too pure for that. So when he says in Matthew 5, 48, you must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect, that's a requirement for heaven. We are so far from perfect, we can't even conceive it. David said his sins are more numerous than the hairs of his head. And we underestimate, all of us, how sinful we are. And so how could people like us ever be 
perfect, and that's the work of salvation. The author himself says that the blood of bulls and goats was not able to perfect the worshipers. Uh, and so we have to be perfect to go to heaven, but the animal sacrificial system could never do it. The amazing thing, the amazing good news of the gospel is it has the power to make sinners like us perfect for heaven. We can be qualified for heaven. And the way that happens is by the full work of salvation, justification, sanctification, and glorification. Now, we believe by one sacrifice, Jesus makes us perfect positionally. So the moment that we come to faith in Christ, that's justification, we trust in him, we are seen by God in Christ positionally perfect. And nothing will ever change that. Forever we will be seen perfect in him. And in that justification righteousness, we will survive Judgment Day will survive, honestly, between now and Judgment Day, and will more than just survive from Judgment Day on into eternity. We will be always seen perfect by God. Now, that's important because God will never, ever forget our sins. He forgets them provisionally and relationally. That's called forgiveness. But he doesn't forget them concerning his omniscience. He always remembers everything. And so forever, when he sees our sins, he sees the covering work of Christ, the atoning work of Christ. And so we, for one, in, in one instant, we are made perfect, forever made perfect. That's justification. So by one sacrifice, he makes sinners perfect. But then the rest of the verse, it identifies us as those who are being sanctified. Um, now, it's debatable. The word sanctification or sanctified usually means setting apart by God. In, in holiness as his own personal possession. And you get this in John 17. Jesus says, um, sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. And then he says, for their sakes, I sanctify myself so that they may be truly sanctified. That seems to be a kind of a once for all positional setting apart unto God as holy because Jesus didn't need to be made progressively holy. But I think here I'm leaning toward a progressive holiness. By one sacrifice... Christ has made perfect positionally forever those who are being made practically holy gradually, day after day. And that's definitely what the author has in mind here. He's going to urge them to live a life of faith, to, um, to, to li walk out and live out their faith and persecution and all that. There's definitely a matter of progressive holiness here. So I think you get both in Hebrews 10, 14. Yeah. The author goes on and says, he adds, he says, and the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us for after saying, and then he recounts Jeremiah 31. I'm going to ask you about that. But first, I want to ask you, what does verse 15 teach you about Jeremiah and the inspiration of Scripture? Absolutely. Uh, we've covered this before, but the Scripture. Chapter 3. Yeah, absolutely. I love it. And the Word of God is living and active, chapter 4. And so the Holy Spirit says in Psalm 95, uh, so today as the Holy Spirit says, you know, if you hear his voice. So the Holy Spirit spoke through all of the prophets who wrote Scripture. Um, we spoke through all of the prophets. Uh, some of the prophets didn't write any Scripture at all. Elijah and Elisha didn't write Scripture. But God spoke through them, but specifically those that wrote down the accounts, like Jeremiah. And we're about to get to the promise of the New Covenant. It was the Spirit, the Holy Spirit in Jeremiah that was speaking through him for us all to hear. So as the Holy Spirit testifies to us, and then he quotes Jeremiah on the New Covenant. So he does quote the New Covenant. He says, This is the covenant that I'll make with them after those days, declares the Lord. I'll put my laws on their minds, and I'll write them on their hearts. 
Then he adds, I'll remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Now he quoted the New Covenant in chapter 8 um, with regard to the new versus the old and the inferiority of the old, the superiority of the new. But here he seems to be, to be adding another dimension to his argument. What is he doing here? Well, I, I think there's actually somewhat of a chiasm or a cross here where you go, you've been made perfect forever and are being progressively made holy as the Holy Spirit testifies. I'll put my laws in your minds and your hearts, changing the way you live, and your sins and laws acts I will never remember again. So that's that it goes, it seems, from justification through sanctification, back over to sanctification, back up to perfection or justification again. And so it's beautiful. Why don't you explain to our listeners what a chiastic structure is, maybe if they haven't uh, heard that before? Yeah, it's like an X, if you can picture a capital X. Um, or it, another would be you identify something uh, as saying basically A, something like A, and then something else is like B. And then you say something like B again, and then back to A again. So it's like an A, B, B, A kind of structure. It's a cross. And it seems that, that both the Old Testament and New Testament writers employed it frequently. Knowing that actually doesn't help you much. Um, but I know that New Testament, Old Testament uh, experts talk about it all the time. So I'm just saying, I think here he's going from justification to mentioning sanctification, describes more of sanctification, the mechanism by which it happens, where he changes us from the inside by putting his laws in our minds and our hearts, and then goes back to the fact that, yes, the whole time I remember your sins no more. And what is his conclusion in verse 18? Mm -hmm. where, where our sins have been forgiven, there's no need anymore for a sacrifice for sin. Well, how could you then bring in a, a, a bull or a sheep or a goat, which is only symbolic anyway, after the sacrifice of the perfect Son of God once for all for our sins? You don't need any more sacrifice. So again, keep in mind the original audience here were Jewish people who were being tempted to go back to Old Covenant religion. And he's saying, you don't need that anymore. We're done. Not only that, it would be an offense to God. So where these sins have been forgiven once for all, forever, then why in the world would you need more animal sacrifice? Yeah, I think it's a powerful point, just quoting Jeremiah and saying, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more, and him saying, that's the proof. Yeah. No more sacrifice. It's a powerful idea, and I mentioned it a little bit, and I've thought a lot about this recently, about God's omniscience and God's open statements that he remembers our sins no more. Um, we, we have to believe in both of those things, and so it's hard to kind of put it all together. Omniscience means everything that can be known, God knows. So that would include our sins. Of course he remembers them. Uh, and there's clear indication of this, that God can remember sins that he's forgiven. All right, the parable of the 10,000 talents, it certainly is the fact that the servant that he forgives that huge debt, who later goes out and chokes one of his fellow servants and says, pay me what you owe me, and he won't do it, then he gets hauled back up in front of the king, and the king says, I canceled all that debt of yours. Oh, wait a minute, I thought you forgot that. No, 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 I know exactly to the penny what you owed, but I forgave it. So I think the only way we can understand, I will remember their sins no more, it's he's not claiming to stop being omniscient or like he has Alzheimer's or, or some kind of mental illness and he doesn't remember things anymore. He remembers everything, absolutely everything. But he covers it through the atoning work of Christ. And relationally, it's as though we have never sinned. It's as though God doesn't remember. He doesn't bring it up. And that's a powerful thing. Yeah. Do you have any final comments on this brief section of Scripture that we've discussed? 
Yeah, I, I think for us continually, you know, I always remember concerning justification how Martin Luther wanted to repeat it again and again because he says it's very hard for sinners like us to believe that we're forgiven. And when we're in the in the battle of sanctification, of trying to live out the new laws that have been written in our minds and our hearts and we have a hard time, the very thing that we hate we do, but the thing we love and want to do we do not do. And so there's this new law written in our souls and we try to live it out, but it's hard and we feel so guilty. And we should feel guilty because it's so it's so terrible. But ultimately, to know that we are forgiven of our sins and that one sacrifice for all time has cleansed us and there's no need for any more sacrifice to go over that again and again is vital. Yeah. Well, next time we transition to Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 through 25 for episode 26. And lest you think that talking about the animal sacrificial system and the once-for-all sacrifice for Christ has no life application, believe me, it does. Because the author gives some strong commands to draw near to the throne of grace and to persevere in the faith in light of this new mediator bringing the new covenant, resulting in a superior life. So please join us next time. Thank you for listening to the Two Journeys podcast, and God bless you all. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.